Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, in which we are discussing the diary of a country priest. And we will be answering your questions today. Uh, You may have noticed once more that I am not David Kern, and I know you miss him so much, Uh, but we actually just gave him the day off, didn't we, Sean? We have have that kind of power over here, you and I. Yeah, that's right. It's clear who's in charge, and it's not David, but he lives, you know, uh, according to our largesse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I hope he (laughs) listens to this and hears this. Uh, yeah, David missed the last couple episodes, and so he doesn't have a lot of A to uh, your Q. And so Sean and That's I right. are going to hold down the fort uh, or the airwaves or the Zoom call or whatever. We're going right. we're to grab them in a, in a mixed metaphor way mm-hmm. and really do something here. Grab the bull by the horns. What else? Yeah, that's right. We're going to do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Take a dog by the ears. There you go. This is my husband every day when he goes to work, he will say, I'm going to go. He mixes the metaphors about bacon and bread like all the time. (laughs) Going to go win some bacon. And bring home the bread. And bring home the bread. That's right. So this is is what we're doing today. We are answering Mm -hmm. your questions about Diary of a Country Priest. And there's a lot of really good questions here, Sean. So I'm looking forward to this. So first of all, how are you doing? Do you have anything to report? Uh, I'm I'm doing. <laughs> I had to think about it for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm doing well. Uh, yes. Uh, still, uh, uh, this weekend was uh, was uh, our, our feast of the resurrection, and we're still uh, recovering as a family. <laughs> I know, right? It is Orthodox uh, Easter, which is a big feast. The, the, and sometimes you feasting. need to recover yeah. from a feast. Yeah, Although right. this whole entire week is a feast. I did just make myself a little charcuterie for nice. lunch because we've yeah. been eating vegan for the last six weeks. It just feels uh-huh. so good. Yep, so I good. had uh, eggs and bacon mm-hmm. today. It was glorious. <laughs> I know. My 16-year-old left at 1045 to go get himself some Burger King for breakfast. um so it's just a very exciting week so and we're all a little tired actually you and i were lamenting um off the air about being back to work on bright monday Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i was complaining about having to read aristotle although i love aristotle but i just gotta i just what i want to do is just read like Agatha Christie outside in the yeah, sunshine right. for like a day yep. and eat my charcuterie. <laughs> but, you know, duty calls. That's probably what David's doing. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I wouldn't put past him. I know. He probably should do that. His ribeyes and his. Uh, That's right. He He's living the his, dream. Uh, Western novels. and Yeah. Yes. All right. So, but we are talking about the diary of a country priest. Uh, so there's a lot of good questions here. We'll start with this one by Elizabeth, uh, who said, probably because I love to eat. Side note, here, here. me too, Elizabeth. <laughs> Kindred spirits. Uh, she keep, She goes on. It stressed me out that the priest spent most of the novel subsisting on bread and wine. Oh, and yeah. then I realized, mm-hmm. duh, bread and wine, the Eucharist. What significance does that have, she asks, for the priest's ministry? 
Any thoughts on mm. this or anything else about the whole bread and wine thing? I, I don't think we talked about why kind of our thoughts on the wine going bad and the changes of the wine, even throughout yeah. the loaded kind of symbolic, uh, um, I don't want to say object. It's not an object. It's such as a, a loaded image within the story and not just in the story, right. just in the Christian life. Yeah. And, uh, I, maybe I have to confess to a little bit of laziness because some of those things struck me. The, the complexity of the, the changes in the image, uh, the symbol of the wine going through different phases over the course of the novel. Uh, yeah, his wine, he spoils a batch of wine early in the novel. Uh, uh, the wine is getting nasty and souring and turning black. Uh, at certain points, he's, sweetening his wine when he drinks it uh, which I really did not allow myself the leisure to to think about too much maybe this is the moment to do it but uh the the fact that he was subsisting on bread and wine as yeah, as hard to miss and uh, I think I think Bernanos does a really great job in the way that he employs that symbol by making it at least on the surface a a necessity of the priest's condition. Uh, so it doesn't feel heavy handed. And yet you can't miss sort of the, the significance of, of this reality that he's subsisting on bread and wine. And like many other uh, saints or monastic figures who have sometimes uh, lived a similar existence, uh, I think it, it ends up then symbolizing the priest's own detachment in a, in a positive way from the world or, or the fact that the priest does not need to rely on the things of the world. Whereas one of the, uh, one of the problems with some of his parishioners and the individuals he meets is uh, one, of, <laughs> one of the problems that is common to all of us, uh, is, is how much we are, uh, we're predisposed to uh, depend on or put our reliance upon, uh, you know, so many of the things of this world and uh, which, you know, for, for uh, majority of Christians on the planet, uh, the season of Lent has just ended. And this is a time where that lesson is sort of uh, reiterated for everyone that there's certain uh, superficial reliances that we, we have uh, come to adopt on, uh, foods and, and other comforts that that are not in fact essential to the life of our soul and uh bernanos uh finds this great literary uh i don't want to call his cancer a macguffin <laughs> this literary justification for stripping down the priest's own uh reliance to just this this sacrament and so it's a it's an image then of what the priest articulates at the very end of the novel that all is grace it's grace that that sustains him throughout and it's a very um, you know poignant way of making that tangible i agree i like that a lot i also through this question started thinking about and remembering how the priest is judged for being an alcoholic and that's a, a rumor mm -hmm. that goes around the village mm -hmm. uh, and 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 that i think I hadn't really connected that to some of what you're saying. 
until you started talking about it, about the reliance on the things of the world as the priest gets sicker uh, and more aware of his own interior sickness uh, that was very physical. He also experiences persecution and um, and judgment from people who think that he's wrong to rely so much on bread and mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. And they assume that that's a form of addiction, which in a way, uh, to your point, speaks to his dependency on the things of heaven versus the things of the world and how those within the world do not understand that or misjudge that. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are other examples of that in the novel too. The, uh, I will forever only remember him as the bad priest. I can't really remember this guy's name. Right, uh, Louis the, at the, the end. Mm-hmm. No, it's the Dean of Blanchemont. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the cynical old priest uh, who is in in his own way castigating uh, our priest, the main character, for his piety. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, uh, And instead telling him that, well, you really need to be a little more cynical, right? You need to understand that these are these ideals are you know seminary stuff, and you just need to understand that these people we deal with, uh, they they have to worry about the realities, the harsh realities of you know commercialism and mercantilism, and uh, you just gotta get with the program, guy. Uh, and so there's uh, from all avenues, uh, the priest is being challenged upon his very simple dependence on uh, the the things of. God and not the things of the world. Mm, yeah, that's really good. Uh, this goes into, I think, the second question, or there's some overlap here. This is from Ryan. Um, and he brings us back to the beginning, which is always wise when you're reading a complex novel. And uh, the beginning uh, uh, uh. of a great novel always matters. Uh, <laughs> even if we don't understand it at first, it always right. comes back. Now, bad novels, that's not always true, but this is a really good one. So Ryan asks, what do we think about the priest's diagnosis of his parish's spiritual malady, boredom? And why does he th- say there's nothing he can do about it? Uh, so I'm going to read a passage here from the very beginning of the novel. This is just page one. He says, this is second paragraph of the novel. He says, my parish is bored stiff. No other word for it. Like so many others, we can see them being eaten up by boredom and we can't do anything about it. Someday, perhaps we shall catch it ourselves, become aware of the cancerous cancerous growth within us. You can keep going a long time with that in you. Um, Turn the page here to page two. Skip a little bit. Uh, He says, well, as I was saying, the world is eaten up by boredom. To perceive this needs a little preliminary thought. You can't see it all at once. It is like dust. You go about and never notice. You breathe it in. You eat and drink it. It is sifted so fine. It doesn't even grit on your teeth. But stand still for an instant. And there it is, coating your face and hands. To shake off this drizzle of ashes, you must be forever on the go. And so people are always on the go. Perhaps the answer would be that the world has long been familiar with boredom, that such is the true condition of man. No doubt the seed was scattered all over life and here and there found fertile soil to take root. But I wonder if man has ever before experienced this contagion, this leprosy of boredom, an aborted despair a shameful form of despair in some way, like the fermentation of a Christianity and decay. 
It's powerful. Yeah, Sean, any lines. any thoughts on this question here? Uh, and maybe even some connections from this beginning part throughout the novel that we didn't see unfold until now. Uh, Heidi, can I, I really want to hear you talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and partly because uh, one of the, one of the other, one of the other writers that immediately comes to mind uh, reading passages like this is Joseph Pieper. And I know that you uh, have a great love for Pieper and, uh, uh, you know, have lived very closely with uh, the the spirit of Joseph Pieper. Uh, And it seems like uh, Pieper helps explain what this, these kinds of statements, this diagnosis of um, boredom uh, Mm -hmm. as this besetting sin of our age uh, that goes along with busyness. Uh, does that does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, can absolutely. You, can, you, can you talk to us about that? Sure. Yeah, the questioner becomes the questionee. Um, so, as you as you say, Joseph Pieper, who wrote a masterful treatise on this very question called "Leisure: The Basis of Culture," uh, and he argues in that book and in others uh, that one of the greatest losses, perhaps the greatest loss uh, of culture and modernity that's tied to mankind's condition and modernity, both spiritually, psychologically, socially, politically, uh, is our loss of meaningful leisure. Uh, and he he argues in the book very convincingly, and I just absolutely believe everything he's saying and want to shout it from the <laughs> rooftops and think it's more relevant now than ever, uh, yeah. is he argues that uh, we can tell the state of a person's soul by how he spends his time when he doesn't have any total work to do. He argues this position of, of the wickedness, really, of total work, a culture defined so much by a marketplace mentality and what you're doing for money uh, that uh, then in... All of life is lived according to this total work ethic. And this is a great danger that he speaks of in modernity, that people just go to work and celebrate this idea of consuming their life with whatever they're doing in the marketplace. And then when they come home, they're then entitled to completely disconnect from any kind of meaningful mental uh, activity or an activity of the hands um, and then go into a, a, a state of torpor, right? Like, so you spend yeah. your entire leisure time uh, occupied by relaxing so that then you can go back to work. Yeah, and it's so just leisure is lost. Of being able to work somewhere, yeah. Yes. Um, and this is incidentally why I will I am very uh vehemently against the whole idea of what we're now calling self-care uh as being just an a disconnection from meaningful leisure in preparation for going back to total work. And so yeah. now we're taking our champagne glasses into the which I'm a big fan of champagne, as you know, into the <laughs> bathtub and having a bubble bath and watching Netflix and then getting up. And then going back into this mindset of kind of of drudgery and hatred yeah, if I'm gonna of be the work any of our good hands. on Monday morning. Yes. I gotta get my veg on now, Sunday. right? Yeah. And then we begin to hate the work of our hands and see nothing meaningful about that. And then when we're not doing work, then we're just completely disconnecting and calling it self care, and then wondering why we have lost any kind of like a meaningful mental activity and depth of soul. Uh, I remember sending my children into their rooms without 
screens or anything, right? When they were little, um, for an hour a day in the afternoon when they weren't sleeping, uh, and, and telling them, this is your opportunity to develop a rich inner life, right? Like, <laughs> and we have lost that. Um, yeah. and, and we see that in Diary of a Country Priest. I really like your connection to people in this, uh, in with this, with Ryan's question, um, that now in this little village, uh, there, there is this, there, there is a, Mm, kind of a narrative exploration of what it means to live in total work, which doesn't exist just behind the Iron Curtain, um, but exists within Western societies that are industrialized uh, and um, and capitalistic. Um, and so that, I think that's a really fantastic connection. There's something else you said that... Um, that I wanted to comment on, but I can't remember what it is right now. So anything to add to that? Uh, <clears throat> no, I'm glad. I'm glad that you, uh, thank you for indulging me. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that th this novel in a lot of other places is consciously working along those same lines. The peeper is uh, there are a number of places where taken together, it seems like one of Bernanos's concerns is, the sort of breakdown of the old nobility whose concern was partially the easing of the of the condition of the poor uh and yeah the post-industrial uh work mindset that uh has changed how we view poverty uh even as this well yeah that poverty is is a thing to be eradicated not to be in endured uh right you can ease the state of the poor or you can eradicate poverty and that they are not in fact <laughs> uh the same thing uh and that the the idea that the poor will not in fact always be with you as, <laughs> as jesus says sort of depersonalizes any sort of uh engagement with the poor or poverty uh because you can uh you can dismiss an individual poor person while all the while being philosophically opposed to poverty uh, or the the uh, the only tenable solution for an individual poor person if you believe that poverty can be eradicated is to just make them not poor or or to turn it around on them and ask them well why are you so poor don't you know that poverty can be eradicated just work a little harder uh, and so the, the plight of the poor person, I think is, uh, is very much, and there's a, a, a question here. I forget the language of it, but there's a question here dealing with that. Uh, the priest himself is, comes from a very poor family. And it's clear throughout the novel that his poverty shapes his experience of human suffering. Uh, and he's often using his own childhood experience, uh, in order to understand the actions of someone else that he's encountering. That's right. And by extension, then to complicate this question of spiritual poverty in his parish, uh, he gives us his upper class characters mm -hmm. right, who, uh, who may not live in squalor of physical po poverty, but still manifest to an even greater degree than some of his poorer 
parishioners a spiritual poverty. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they are also, uh, they also reflect this lack of meaningful leisure, right? They don't support his attempts to bring a sports program uh, and, um, you know, different elements of of their spiritual poverty um, and their resistance to helping uh, to alleviate the suffering of the poor and thus create a community uh, of Christians within within this within this village um so that theme of poverty is explored on multiple levels both symbolically and allegorically and also physically yeah all right let's take a look at another question sean jennifer asks how does bernanos's other work compare with the diary of a country priest you're the only one who's going to be able to comment on that i haven't read anything else by bernanos uh, and then she goes on and asks another question. She says, I have recently warmly recommended this book to a family member who will be ordained next month. What other books would you recommend for the to-be-read pile of a young priest? Oh, yeah. Love that. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, let's start with uh, the first one. How does Bernanos' yeah. other work compared with Diary of a Country Priest? Which I feel... Uh, even though I don't feel very qualified to answer this question, I feel more, more qualified. <laughs> I feel more qualified to answer this question than the second one. Uh, I have I have only only read one other novel by Bernanos, and that was um, the probably after this one his his other best known novel, Under the Sun of Satan. And oh wow, that's quite a title. Uh, yeah, I'm and intrigued. <laughs> uh, and the. I, I'm given to understand that in, in some important ways, that novel is more characteristic of his body of work in general. Hmm. And that this one is a little more reserved in that Bernanos is always interested in spiritual conflict and in Diary of a Country Priest. It's very mundane, uh, and it's viewed through uh, it's viewed through the flesh. Uh, and this is a very this is a very fleshy book. Uh, the The spiritual inner life of the priest is very significant, uh, but uh, his torment is often bodily. All right, the the manifestation of spiritual suffering and conflict and torment for him has this bodily manifestation or component. And, uh, and the drama is usually interpersonal, uh, in Bernanos's other works, uh, there's more overt supernatural element, uh, in under the son of Satan, a priest actually has an encounter with the devil, uh, and that these kinds of encounters are not unusual in his other novels uh which is one of the reasons i think in the first episode uh i said that he reminded me of charles williams uh a little bit so this is more i think that's one of the reasons maybe that this is more widely uh read because in some ways it's what you would call a tamer novel uh but i thought under the sun of satan was excellent and i have several more Bernanos novels on my shelf that I look forward to reading, but that's the the most I can say. Hmm. Um, 
I am going to go off script here for a second. And I'm very curious about your reading style. So oh. if you find an author that you like, like, do you just go take like a deep dive on that? Art? Like, I love Diary of Country Priest. Let me read like five more Bernanos novels. Um, yeah. Are you kind of like that? Do you kind of like go into it? Uh, I I can be like that, but I'm not obsessive. Hmm. So I I know I know some people. I have I have a number of friends who might read a book and love it, and then buy five more books by that author and read them all. If I read a book and love it, I will tell myself hmm, sometime in the next sixteen months, I'm going to find some time to read a few. <laughs> A few more of that guy's books. Uh, and so I don't get this sort of uh, wild hair that I that I just can't stop. Uh, it's more like plan projects. Uh, but I will. Uh, like I, I, I have uh, several more Bernanos books. And when I get to them, I may read two or three of them in succession. Uh, but I maybe it's just that I've trained myself uh, to prefer delayed gratification mm-hmm. or something. and I just have such a, a large you know to be read pile anyway that uh it's it really has to be something pretty urgent if it's going to jump the queue yeah that makes sense I think you and I have a pretty similar reading style in that way that's just how I am and yeah. actually I do that maybe less now than I have in the past because now I like uh-huh. I'm like a professional reader so <laughs> I have things I have to read right there are uh, more and, must reads yeah. yes um and each must read is like opening up a new you know internet tab right then I yeah right exactly. and then that that leads down a rabbit hole um yeah. and I'm typically yeah. reading six or eight books at a time. Yeah. Uh, and so you can only add so many, you know, spinning plates in there at one time. That's really true. If it were up yep. to me though, I think I would be more of a deep diver if I didn't. Yeah. I would, you know, find Bernanos and then read everything he wrote or whatever's on like yeah. the major read a, list. Read or a biography, whatever. read yeah. his letters. And, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that that that's down the road when I'm a little bit less busy or pressured in my reading. And when I say pressure, I don't mean that negatively, but you know what I mean? I can't, we can't right. always follow our inclinations anymore. This Sean. is true. There's um, duty and there's desire. That's right. And then <laughs> thankfully with reading, they're generally united or they find right. a way what to a, bring them together. Blessing. Yes. Um, I do tend to be a little bit more like that though with nonfiction than with fiction because uh, I will start like the last author that I did that with was a few years ago um, and it was Northrop Fry. I don't know if you're familiar oh, yeah. with Northrop Fry. Yeah, am I familiar and with I know, Fry? right? And, he, um, and so I read, um, I can't remember what I read. I think it was this Shakespeare book and was just like, who oh, yeah. is this guy? Yeah. And then I read <laughs> everything read by Northrop Fry and he's not an easy read. And so it took this me a true. long yeah. time to make it through his, his canon. Um, yeah. I've done that with Robert Alter, who wrote about mm-hmm. the Bible as scripture. I think, you know, I get like a new, a, an author who's done a, um, a lot of work on a certain topic, especially if it's related yeah. to the literature or the classics or, you know, thinking kinds of things. And then I just get right. really, I just want to like immerse myself in their thoughts. So I tend to be a little more like that with nonfiction even yeah, now. No, I think that's, I think that's fair. I understand that. Yep. Um, and then... But I know lots of people who just, who will read something, you know, read Bernanos and be like, that was really great. And now I'm ready for something new. And then just kind of, yeah. yeah, um, Or take turns between reading an old book and a couple and and a new book or like a light novel series ones. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, okay. What about the second part of her question uh, as far as recommending some? And let's stick to novels. Let's keep it as nonfiction. Yeah, okay. Or, yeah. Excuse me. Keep it as fiction. Okay. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's probably a good idea. I have uh, two. The, the awesome. first couple of books yeah. that came to my head probably weren't novels. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, well. Well, so you start. Yeah. I have two off the top of my head. Um, one uh-huh. is that I would recommend as great reading for priest or young priest. The first is obvious, right? The power and the glory yeah. by Graham Greene. This one I would say mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and we've done a series on the power and the glory. Uh, and it's just, I just love that novel and it helped me understand and have compassion on the fraught nature, both spiritually mm-hmm. and physically of the work mm-hmm. of a priest. Um, and it also is one of the novels that more than anything helped me understand the distinction between a priest's virtue and the sacraments that a priest brings into the life of a believer, which is yeah. helpful for uh, those who aren't liturgical Christians who, um, who, who, who might not, who want to know more about that kind of, the, that distinction. There's, there's the priest mm-hmm. as a man and the priest is a priest and the sacraments are not diminished. The power of the sacraments in the life of believer are not diminished by the virtue or lack thereof from the priest. And that's a high calling. Like that was very sobering to me um, because I read the power and the glory first as Protestant. And so that was yeah. so formational to my understanding of the sacramental life. Um, and as well as just being a very intensely beautiful and distressing um, mm-hmm. contemplation of the life of a priest under persecution. Yeah. Um, my other one is one I read this year, and I am, I am, it's called The Sparrow. It's, oh, by, I just, listen, I, yeah. I got it. I got it a week ago. Uh-huh. And I, Desperate to read more than I have been able to read, but uh, I, I'm hooked. I'm only, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Oh man, I'm 50 or 60 pages in. I'm hooked. Ah, uh, I really, really want to do it on the show. And so oh, here's man. what I'm hoping. I'm hoping we get a whole bunch of listeners who yeah. will read this novel and then create like a hubbub and an outcry and an <laughs> outpouring of desire to read this book on the show because I yeah. love it. I was it, you know, published. And, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say it. It reminds me in in a lot of ways, actually, uh, just the the themes and the tone of Canticle for Leibowitz, which mm. we're doing later this year. Good. Uh, the, and the I've plots not read are very, that one. The well, maybe uh, we'll see what you think then. Okay. Uh, the plots are very different, but there is there's some uh, tonal thematic stuff that is very familiar. I'm really excited to read that book, Sean. That was another one of your suggestions, right? And I, I yeah, can't wait yeah. to read it. The Sparrow okay, so was published why, why in book? 1996. Uh, and the author is Mary Doria Russell. It won a bunch of awards. It was very, very popular in its day and has, you know, kind of waned in its um, in average person's novel of it. But it's still like in on a lot of lists, like must read novelists. Uh, and it is about a Jesuit mission to outer space. So it is a uh, <laughs> sci-fi novel um, with in just this incredible characterization and a very deep contemplation of the nature and purpose of suffering. Um, and it explores the lives of some lay people and some priests. Um, and 
even monastics. So it's just uh, just the most fantastic and thought provoking novel I've read this year. It's definitely so far my number one, and it will it will feature on our end of the year favorites list. <laughs> um, and uh, but it it does contemplate like I said, the nature of suffering and the purpose of suffering and also the nature of ministry and the purpose of ministry Mm -hmm. and how in trying to do good, we often do harm. And what do we do with that? Like what, how do we make sense of that when we are sincerely trying to do good and we end up not like what, what, what does that mean for us spiritually and, you know, on the very human level? So I, I think that would be an excellent novel for a young a young priest to read too any others uh i i would recommend i would recommend father brown mm, uh gk chesterton's uh detective stories because uh, and the power and the glory would have been probably the first on my list as well uh and while while a book like the power and the glory uh might help you imagine you know some of the 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 deep extremities of of the vocation of the priesthood uh what i love about father brown's stories is while that profundity is there uh father brown is a great picture of someone who is just faithfully and dutifully doing the yeoman's work of everyday priesthood uh he's i mean he is <laughs> he's solving murders and things like that that are not god willing are going to be everyday occurrences um, in the average parish, uh, but he's doing it by dealing with the normal stuff of human life. And uh, right, he says that he's so good at at profiling criminals and uh, uh, solving mysteries because he's learned human nature in the confessional, and uh, that he uh, he cuts through. He's got this kind of Occam's razor uh, that cuts through even the the nonsense of the. Sort of elaborate Sherlock Holmesian solutions to uh, problems that can sometimes be very Byzantine, and uh, yeah, Father Brown is just a, a pious, down-to-earth uh, priest doing doing the everyday uh, work of the priest with a, a joyful attitude. Right. Uh, so you it. can't can't go wrong with Father Brown. That's a great suggestion. I really like that. All right, Suzanne asks, um, can you compare and contrast? Le Carre de Torsi and the priest, duty and desire, pride versus cowardice, gin and strength and experience versus wine and weakness and youth, which serves their parishioners better? And she adds in parentheses, of course, we don't get to see or know anything of de Torsi's flock. And then she asks, does uh, de Torsi misjudge our young priest? Um I just want to give a shout out to Suzanne. She's had a lot of insightful comments and questions over the course of this reading and has even opened up the novel, even some to me as well. Um, And so I like this question a lot. So um, yeah, Sean, any comments on that? Yeah, I, this is my, this is my second read of the novel. And I remembered overall really liking DeTorsi after the first read, but uh, in my memory, he wasn't as complex as he he turned out to be, or or I remembered after after this second read that he that he was. And I think even Detorsi changes a little over the course of the novel, 
uh, even if he doesn't change in his own nature and disposition, he changes in his understanding or appreciation of the priest, uh, the young priest. Uh, but uh, I don't, uh, I really don't, I, I have like knee jerk responses and uh, immediately I become suspicious of them. And uh, I think the, I think the experience versus youth contrast is really helpful. Uh, I mean, all of those, all of those contrasts that Suzanne uh, points out are, are great, especially identifying the, uh, the characteristic beverages of the two men uh, at the, because gin is, gin tends to be a distilled um, alcohol, but, and we think of, I guess, you know, people in, in 21st century America probably think of it as something like vodka, like a potent, clear liquor. Uh, but gin was, the oldest gins were distilled from grapes. And so the source is the same. Uh, but it is a sort of uh, headier, more potent version of of uh, what a wine would be. And I think maybe uh, Bernanos is inviting us to to see de Torsi and the young priests not as contrasting figures, but yeah, as uh, similar figures uh, at different points in their life. And de Torsi. Uh, maybe even he seems to lament at, at some point that he, well, first he rebukes the priest. <laughs> he rebukes the priest a number of times. He gives him a hard time. Uh, but I think there are moments when he's also lamenting that he has not been what the young priest is. Uh, and I think back to that that particular conversation about the characteristic moment in the life of Christ that determines or that defines each priest. And uh, de Torsi de says of himself that it is the moment when the disciples are falling asleep in, in the garden. Uh, but we've talked a great deal about how even the, the, the main character is harder on himself in certain ways than other people might be. Uh, and I wonder if that's not something that's true of de Torsi as well, that he, uh, maybe this is a valid reproach, but maybe it's, uh, stronger coming from himself than it would be coming from others. Uh, and that one of his, one of the reasons he has an affinity for the young priest is perhaps because he was, uh, in some ways like this as a young man. Uh, and that his world weariness, <laughs> has uh, made him what he is, but it could have turned him into the Dean of Blanchement, who's just the absolute <laughs> worst. <laughs> and so there are, there are uh, various trajectories that a young idealist priest could uh, end up on, and that perhaps de Torsi is just uh, a halfway decent uh, way for a priest like this who ends up having to live out his days but our young priest is never going to have to worry about that. Right. I like, I like that. I think that you're bringing up a pretty classic literary technique, right. Of, um, of pitting doubles against one another in order to, yeah. uh, to see how the, how, what each double might represent 
and um, and how those doubles can encounter each other and refine and overlap their ideas, um, yeah. either coming to like a conflict of competing forces or creating some kind of synthesis. Uh, and um, and fiction lends itself to doing that very, very well, right? Because you mm-hmm. can speculate on how somebody who has a more robust and militant Christianity like de Torcy might um, refine uh, or clash against someone with a more um, mystical or emotional uh, an introverted experience, an introspective experience of Christianity, like our young priest, who's a central character. Uh, oh. and, um, and so even though de Torcy and the young priest, I think are not, um, allegories, but they do represent a certain type of priest in the, in the ministry of Christ in the church. And, uh, and as such, they, there's, there's conflicts uh, between them and differences between them. Um, and the novel continues to keep asking, at least for me in my mind, like, can a synthesis be made? Do we have to choose one or over the other? Or we can we not just see how these two different priests both add to and contribute and participate in the work of the church? Uh, and I think that's more likely to be the case versus to your points the more corrupt kind of worldly priest who i think is thrown in there to partly to show us these other priests are good they may be yeah. different but they're not bad they're not they yeah. may be, they may they may bring a contrast to the forefront um and maybe even a contrast that can't completely be resolved mm-hmm. um but they are both well-meaning and doing the good work of the church in their communities. And I think, uh, so to, to answer another part of uh, the question here, does de Torcy misjudge the young priest? I think there are points at which he does. Mm-hmm. And in certain ways, his misjudgments correct themselves when he realizes uh, the truth of the circumstance. Right. When he suspects momentarily the priest of alcoholism, uh, but then he sort of comes to understand the actual situation. Uh, but then other circumstances in which he just changes his own mind. He, he makes a judgment about the young priest, uh, and then comes around, uh, a, a bit to the young priest's way of thinking. Uh, and in doing so even articulates himself or to this idea that you're, that you're bringing up that, well, uh, St. Paul talks about the body having many parts that all have various functions and, uh, and that the, the priesthood maybe, uh, maybe that's one of the, the minor themes of this novel is that the priesthood is not one body part, uh, but that in a way there's a, that analogy, uh, is replicated within the vocation of the priesthood and that there are different, different ways of being a priest that can complement one another. And so the ways in which de Torcy and the young priest are different are also what allow them to help each other or de Torcy, especially to be a help to the young priest. Whereas if they were identical types and, and identical in uh, station and age and you know, stage of life, they would not be able to, they would not be the same kind of help. Yeah, I think that's right. Another book that I think explores this pretty well within its 900 pages or whatever, uh, is the Brothers Karamazov, which we are reading this summer at the Close Reads 
podcast retreat, Mountain Retreat, which oh, yeah. is yet another book, Jennifer, that you should add yes. to give oh, to you, yeah. a young priest. Um, every human being should read the Brothers K at some every point in their lives, and yeah. certainly a, a priest. And um, there's there's such a love for um, for monastics and priests that permeates. Um, the brothers K, but also a great complexity, moral complexity, spiritual complexity, and human complexity, um, explored there. And in, um, in the brothers K, there is a, a center, a beloved central character named Elder Zosimus, uh, who influences our young hero, Aliasha, very much and has a very rich and fruitful ministry. Um, but Father Zosimus is a complicated man. Um, and especially in his death, he creates a great complication for Aliasha and for the whole, I'm not going to give too much away here, um, and for the whole village. Um, but he has an enemy who's also a monk and a very spiritual man. And this man hates him. I cannot remember his name. I've been trying to Google it to remember his name. I just read the book. Do you remember Is his it name? Uh, Paisi? No. Well, there. yes, but that's not who I'm thinking of. Um, Paisi, uh, uh, he's... He's oh, yeah, a monk no. and a hermit who has like oh, a very yeah. he's he's a very strict he has a strict uh uh fasting that he adheres to and uh and they're uh, he's different well, well known for it. Yeah, yes. they're, and they're, they're very different. So the point is is that they have very, very different ways of manifesting their ascetic struggles. Uh and um and they don't like each other. And yet the book is the richer for the presence of both of them and in a very frank acknowledgement of two different ways of being priests and monks in the world and even in the same monastery in the same land, cultural landscape. Uh, and, and the exploration of that, um, is kind of central to this idea within the novel and within many other novels about the vocation of the priesthood, that there's multiple ways of living out the vocation of Christian ministry. And this is certainly true, and not only in Orthodoxy or Catholicism, but certainly in Protestantism as, as well, uh, that there's, we, we made distrust or dislike or or maybe even not so strongly just kind of resist another person's spirituality in the world and yet if if we didn't have that the faith and the landscape of the world would would be lesser um but it's but it's also natural that if we strongly inhabit a certain way of our being spiritually being in the world that there's going to be a little bit of misunderstanding if yeah. somebody else is doing it differently. Yeah. That's the body of Christ, yeah. I guess. And well, our and journey the, of repentance. Uh, and that's the culmination of the Beatitudes too, is mm. you know, blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you for my sake. Uh, if you're, if you're being, if you're living faithfully, uh, I mean, that's, that's all you, that's all you have to worry about. Right. Uh, and uh, this, that kind of misunderstanding or, or, uh, misreception is going to be you know, expected and uh, has to be endured. Mm. It's Father Farapont. That who that is who way. it is. Thank yeah. you. It's Father Farapont. Uh, I try I try to never be more than three feet away from a copy of Brothers K. So I just <laughs> It's kind of like none of us are ever more than six feet away from a spider. I learned that on an episode of Law and Order and I've never forgotten it. <laughs> yep. Which was very different from Brothers K. <laughs> Completely different things, but Oh, um, 
Okay, so there's one, we have time for one more question. Uh, and so I'm going to, Anne asks a question about dialect that I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, she says, this may be more of a translation question. Lots of the common parishioners' dialogue is written in dialect, Seraphita and Arseni, for example. Between the translators' use of words like baint, which we don't recognize, right? And the audiobook narrator's use of a Wessex accent, I felt like I was back in Tess of the D'Urbervilles. It was kind of jarring, since obviously we're not in England. It made me wonder what the translator was trying to reflect from the original. What's the equivalent accent in accent in French like? We don't have to answer that part because I just don't know. Maybe you do. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Johnson in his little treatise on gin there, by the way. Um, <laughs> oh, I could keep yeah, going on gin. I know. And are we supposed to think of certain qualities and make certain assumptions about these characters that we would make about an English parishioner speaking that way? Anybody familiar with French dialects and regional dif- differences who can speak to this? Any thoughts? This is what I liked. Any thoughts on a literary level about translating dialectical and regional speech and you know how that how that played out in Diary of a Country Priest? Great question. Really liked it. Um, Sean, anything off the top of your head? Uh, I wish I knew more Me about uh, French <laughs> regional accents because uh, this is a great question, and it I'm is. sure that there's. I'm sure that there's uh, something going on there or something to be made of it. Uh, but I don't know that I, I don't know that I have much to say there. Uh, I do like the idea of, well, I, I think that one of the, one of the strengths of including dialogue in dialect is it does situate the characters in their station Mm -hmm. uh, which is an important aspect of the novel uh the interplay between the the peasant class and uh and the you know the local nobility and uh the the rural folks and the and the city folks uh and so on a very superficial level i think it has that uh benefit uh and i i love the question about uh, the, the literary question about translating dialectical and regional speech. And I think, uh, yeah, it's a shame if that, if that kind of nuance is in, uh, an original language and gets smoothed over for the sake of translation. Uh, I mean, God only knows I, I might have, you know, favorite books <laughs> that I'm reading in translation that have been totally butchered and, uh, adulterated in that way and i just have no idea i hope not uh yeah so i i would i would say that that would probably just require a a lot of of a translator but i do do know that every culture has these Mm -hmm. uh this variety of of accents i mean so we we're probably more familiar with british accents but uh there's not just one British accent, you know, everybody in England isn't just going, hello, Gov. And, <laughs> and, and they can, uh, position still to this day, they can position someone often, uh, in their class or in their, uh, you know, you know, level of education. Uh, and but then other times they're used to stereotype in the way that we sometimes do in the U S, right? We, we think that anybody, uh, well, I, I am a northerner who lives in the South. And so, uh, 
uh, I have become more conscious <laughs> after uh, a number of years in the South of the variety of Southern accents. And uh, if you're from the North and don't encounter Southern accents on a day-to-day basis, you might also think there's just one Southern accent uh, and that it signifies <clears throat> uh, lower intelligence. Right. That's not that's not what I think. That's just what those northern people think that I I don't have anything to do with anymore, guys. It's, right. Uh, so uh, but what do you think about written writing and dialect? Like, do you, does just, it distract you if you're reading it in a novel? Uh, or do so, you like it because it makes it more like local color or whatever? I I would I would say if it's if it's doing what what I mentioned a minute ago, what I think it's doing in this novel, I'm thankful for it. And, uh, and that's, that's, I guess where I was getting around in my meandering sort of way, uh, in, in talking about Southern accents. Right. But, uh, if you can, if you can hear the difference between, uh, a Louisiana accent and the Kentucky accent and a Georgia accent and a Mississippi accent, uh, you, you can, uh, start to understand a lot about a person just by hearing them speak. And if you can convey that in text, uh, it can be a really powerful means of characterization. But if it's just done to add, as you say, like local color, uh, uh, just for authenticity's sake, uh, I I find that annoying. (laughs) See, I just, I struggle with it. I'll be honest, because it's enough work to read a, um, like a, a difficult novel. And then yeah. to add like the spelling changes so that I am pronouncing an accent in my head as I'm reading, I find it distracting and annoying. And my eyes oh, tend yeah. to go over the dialogue and I don't catch things as well, um, which may speak to me being a lazy reader. I don't mind if it's um, if if it's dialect in the sense that the grammar is changed, right? Like, mm-hmm. like Faulkner does this, I think very, very well. You read yeah. like Faulkner, I think nails it because he writes his, the dialogue so that it's not any harder to read um, than just regular Faulkner. It's hard to read. Right. Right. Um, right. Um, but it's but I harder still, than usual. Am, yes, but I'm still actually reading it in, the Southern accent in my head without having to like wade through all the spelling changes uh, that are typically used. um, Mark Twain does that really well too. Zora Neale Hurston does an okay job. I just think it's too much. Like it's a little bit too much. Like I just tend to get distracted and just like, don't even all like the long paragraph of text mm, that Zora Neale mm-hmm. Hurston writes in dialect and I don't know yep. how to pronounce it and it's tricky. <laughs> I feel like I'm translating a different language and then I just don't read it very carefully. Yeah, I think maybe maybe really what it is is that there are a few people that do it really well. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it emboldens the people who don't do it as well. Right. And uh, yeah, because there are a few great examples uh, that I don't find obnoxious and all. And I, and I think uh, actually augment the, the the literature the way they're supposed to. But then oftentimes it, it falls a little flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's do you know Paul Kingsnorth? Uh-huh. You know this yeah, guy? I love him. Uh, have you read any of his Anglo-Saxon novels? No. So he's got this trilogy of novels. The first one is called The Wake. And he he has created this, he calls it a shadow tongue, 
Uh, it's like an English or, or a phonetic approximation of Anglo-Saxon or some like the transitional point between Anglo-Saxon and Middle English, maybe just before the Norman conquest. Uh, and the whole novel is written in this weird hybrid dialect that he has created uh, to try and immerse you in the world of these characters. And I find <laughs> it's the kind of book that I have tried to start a dozen times. And I think that I just need enough time and leisure to power through a lot of it all in one sitting to sort of get the rhythm and, uh, and start cruising through this strange alien language that's only barely recognizable as English. Uh, but I have not succeeded yet. And so it is one of those things where I think it seems brilliant in on paper and uh, it has not yet come alive to me <laughs> in reality. Uh, so it's a risky, it's a risky business playing around with, with dialect. Right. I think that's right. That's true. I do find that if an author writes in something like that, after a little, after like 15 pages, you just kind of get the gist of it. Yeah. Your, your brain rewires. Yeah. A little bit. And you're like, Oh yeah. no, I get how to read this. Um, yeah. and, and that's true for structure like a lot of postmodern writers which paul king's north is not one um yeah a lot of postmodern writers have played around with this to say like how far can i push a lack of structure how much can i make sure. my novel read like an e.e cummings poem and and people will still read it and call it brilliant right. and you know <laughs> experimental or whatever um and the answer after 20 years was like not a lot Right. Yeah, not a lot not, of people are going to hang in yeah. there with it, no matter how much the New York Times said your book was great. Like there's there there does seem to be that uh, that people have enough common sense to be like, if you're going to write a novel, you're writing it to an audience who already thinks and reads in a certain way. And you kind of got to yeah. like hang in there with that. Um, but some novelists have done it pretty well. I think George. um Saunders did it pretty well, like so well, actually, oh, yeah. just pretty well. He does it incredibly well. George yeah. Saunders does. Paul Kingsnorth, I haven't read that, but I love him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'd be interesting. I'd be, I'd be curious about that. Um, all right. Well, any final thoughts before we end our discussion of Diary of a Country Priest? Sean, anything you want to make sure that we get to say before we're done? <laughs> uh, only that there's so much we have still not been able to talk about. I think in this book, uh, that it's so simple and unassuming in its premise. Young priest has a hard time, dies. <laughs> uh, but that there's, there's so much, uh, there's so much there, uh, thematically and even structurally. I, I think that there's, uh, a lot going on with the, the structure of this novel that I haven't gotten my head all the way around uh, and that we haven't really had time to, to explore fully. Uh, but uh, the more that I've read it and thought about it, uh, the more I'm uh, really impressed by the, the, the brilliance of, of this novel uh, from, again, from a thematic point of view, as far as literary craft is concerned, uh, uh, technically. And uh, so don't feel like I always tell my students this when we finish reading a great book and don't feel like uh we have plumbed the depths of this book just because you've come through this work with, with close reads and kudos to you. Uh, don't feel like 
it's done with you because there's so much more that we have not been able to to do justice to. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I think that's right. I even I've just been thinking so so much in in this cultural landscape right now in which so many Christian parents are asking, why are students, why are children leaving the faith, right? Like we raise them so carefully and then in college they lose their faith. And I just keep thinking all the time about the priest who says, we don't lose our faith like we lose keys. We just <laughs> stop living by it. And I, that's just such, I think that's one of those like will stick with me forever yeah. ideas from this book. And I'm so grateful it was worth the price of admission just to have some that to meditate on. And it's mm-hmm. already created some very fruitful conversations with me and my teenagers yeah. just to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, as a, as a teacher of 14 years, uh, it's, it's been my experience that, uh, you know, lamentably, hmm. it's almost never a surprise when your former students go off to college and stop going to church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that the revelation happens then. There, there were, there were revelations that were, uh, happening much earlier. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that it is a a, uh, a kind of a way of living and not not just something that is suddenly lost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a great point. Um. All right. Well, we are done with the diary of a country priest. Couple of housekeeping items. Next week, we will be uh, releasing our first episode on Eudora Welty's "The Optimist Daughter." Uh, yeah. I, this is going to be a new read for me as well. I've not read this book. I've actually I only read Eudora Welty short stories. I've never read a novel by her. Mary I'm Jo in Tate. The same boat. One of good. I'm glad to know that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not ashamed of you, but I'm a little bit ashamed of myself for that. And so, very, very <laughs> grateful to be able to remedy that. And Mary Jo Tate, one of our faithful listeners and incredibly yes. insightful um, participants in our social media, has um, has a lot to teach us about Eudora Welty. So I'm hoping yeah, she'll engage right. in the conversation. Please yes, don't be ashamed please. of me. God willing. Yeah. Mary Jo. Uh, and so this will be, I've already started a little bit. I like Eudora Welty because she is funny and insightful. So I'm really looking forward to this novel. Yeah, uh, another thing is if you have not signed up for our Close Reads on the Road on Southern Literature happening August 3rd and 4th in Atlanta. You can find information on uh, on that weekend event um, on our Substack page and then also on Facebook and Instagram. We have links to that on social media um, and on Substack. So please, please consider joining us. We have limited spots and they are filling up, but we should have plenty of room if you want to go at this point still. And so. it's- it's going to be great. Yes, we're very excited about it. It's our first um, bigger event. It's still not huge. We always want Close Reads to remain a ongoing conversation about books. We are not interested in uh, talking at you, but talking with you. And so we want to create events uh, in which we are conversing about books with friends, just like we do here on the air. Uh, and so please consider joining us. Um, it is going to be really fun. And we are going to go see some Shakespeare with Tim, which yes. is just, it's going to be so much fun. Um, what's the name of the restaurant that we're going to? Uh, it's the Atlanta Shakespeare Tavern. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And it is, it is really great. I've seen a number of shows there and they do a good job. 
I have not. I have seen nothing there. I cannot wait. We're going to eat. <laughs> we're going to have some wine. We're going to watch Shakespeare. We're going to talk about Southern short stories. It's going to be amazing. So if you want more information about that, um, go to our Substack page, um, www.closestreets.substack.com. Go to Facebook uh, or to Instagram and sign up. We want you there. Uh, anything else, Sean, that I haven't said? Oh, go. Paralandra. Oh no! Oh yeah, Paralandra. That's what I was going to say. Uh, yeah, over on the uh, uh, subscriber series, we are we are in the midst now of Paralandra, the second book in C.S. Lewis's Ransom trilogy or Space trilogy. And uh, depending on who you ask, if you ask the right people, this maybe is the best book in the series. Yeah, it's don't great. miss it. I, we're having a really good conversation about it already. So yeah. come on over there. And you get to hear David Kern's voice again over there. If you've right. what he yes, sounds like. Yes, I promise. He was on the last episode. He's yes. still alive. We have we're not, not doing some weekend at Bernie's kind of thing here. Killed him and disposed uh, yeah. of his body. He is alive yeah. and well. So, um, all right. Well, that's it then. So for Sean Johnson, for the absentee, uh, David Kern, I'm Heidi White. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Happy reading. Happy reading.